All right, good morning, Milton. Thanks for joining us. Uh, it's some important things that we're going to be talking about in this sermon series, Jesus and Justice. And I, I feel honored, I feel privileged to, to be able to contribute what I have towards the cause of letting the church rise up um, in support of, of all those who are on the receiving end of injustices of, of all kinds. And I want to start just by reading a passage that, uh, that Jesus cites at the beginning of his ministry. Jim read it a couple weeks, weeks ago. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, Jesus says, because he's anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives, recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. <clears throat> this morning I'm going to be talking about unity and reconciliation as it applies inside and outside the church. Um, and if I've got to talk about unity and reconciliation, that that implies something, right? That implies the fact that, that there's disunity. It, uh, it assumes the fact that there's hostility between people. Um, so that means that first thing I gotta do is kinda paint everything black. We've gotta understand the problem that we have before we can get down to the fix. So before I get into this message, as a reminder of what we're trying to do this morning, uh, I'm just gonna quote you know, our friend John Corbin from last Sunday, he said, at the, end of the, at the end of the talk with Jordan, he said, part of the playbook in the church that we've seen is to use the gospel as a defense mechanism to prevent self-examination, dialogue, examination of structures, and the church. And that's, that's a tragic thing to hear said about the church and uh, the church's use of the gospel. I just pray, let it never be so at Milton. All right, so let's just pray first before we get into the word of God this morning. God, we thank you for the redemptive and reconciling power of the cross and the blood this morning. We thank you that through the blood, the dividing wall of hostility has been broken down and we can be reconciled to the Father. We can be reconciled in right relationship with you and reconciled in right relationship with our neighbors. Lord, we are not ashamed of the gospel for it is the power of God for salvation for everyone who believes. We trust you, God. We honor you and we glorify you this morning. Amen. If you have your Bibles... Uh, you can open them up to Ephesians chapter 2. We're going to be reading verses 11 to 22. Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at, the, at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of the promise, having no hope <coughs> and without God in the world. But now, in Christ, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who are far off and peace to those who are near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the prophets and the apostles, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you are also being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. 
So the gospel as it's presented here in the passage we just read is not used as, defense, as a defense mechanism to avoid confronting disunity. It's presented as the solution to the problem. And that's what I want to spend my time this morning proving to you that our gospel demands unity. It demands equity. It demands that the church as ambassadors of our Lord answer the call of those crying out because of inequity, because of disunity and division and suffering as a result. <clears throat> a pretty consistent theme throughout the New Testament, we see it in the Gospels, we see it in Acts, and it's addressed in a number of the epistles, is the division between the Jews and the Gentiles in the early, early days of the church. In the Gospels, the religious elite, the Pharisees, the, the priest class, uh, they had a higher social location, to use some of the, the terminology we're seeing today. They considered themselves and were considered by others to be of greater value and importance in view of their piety and their righteousness. Post-ascension in Acts, when the gospel spreads wide beyond the bounds of ethnic Israel, Jew and Gentile again began to divide over the law and over the outward signs of the covenant. Uh, ethnic Israel looked at the Gentiles in judgment and derision as a bunch of uncircumcised, ham-sandwich-eating, mixed-cloth-wearing heathens, while the Gentile converts looked at the Jews as a bunch of you know, snooty, self-righteous, prophet-killing, Baal-worshipping hypocrites. Uh, the Jews still thought they were at the top of the pyramid, and the Gentiles resented them for that. And the Gentiles were being offered the blessings of the covenant without the ordinances, and the Jews resented them for that. It was a very real division, and that division manifested itself as an ethnic or a social problem. <clears throat> so my first question, it might seem like a stupid question, um, but why is division bad? Uh, from a naturalistic point of view that, uh, that assumes that there's no God, that assumes that you know, we're all just a, a function of, of random chance, um, it has no real basis for any universal objective morality. It seems like in that case, division makes sense. The strong are divided from the weak. They're not the same, and so they don't deserve the same benefits. Um, you know, so in that case, settlers come armed with rifles and influenza, and they wipe out indigenous populations and get to enjoy the spoils of victory. That seems fair. But we know better from a theistic perspective. We know that division is a result of placing value in the wrong place. When I, was a, when I was a camp counselor, I remember we used to break up into smaller groups with some of the kids, and we'd run through this imaginary scenario. It was a, this, this lifeboat, life raft scenario, where the kids were given, they were given different characters to play, and they were to pretend to be shipwrecked and all on a lifeboat. The problem was the lifeboat was too full, and it was barely afloat. So someone had to get out of the boat. So they were tasked with deciding you know, who that would be. So the kids would go through the pros and cons, and they would work through deciding who should get out of the boat. Maybe one person was a little bit overweight, so if they got out of the boat, it would float better, and everyone would have a better chance of surviving. Maybe one person was a doctor, so uh, you know we shouldn't kick him out of the boat in case someone gets, someone gets sick and someone needs help. Uh, maybe another person on the boat was terminally ill. Um, so you know they're probably going to die soon anyway, so maybe they should be the one to get out of the boat. So you get the point. Um, I can't exactly remember how it ended. I'm pretty sure Jesus ended up getting out of the boat. Um, but the point is that at no point during the scenario did, did any of the kids ever um, point to the implicit value and dignity of human life, regardless of the conditions attached to it. That, that never got raised as a reason not to toss someone overboard. That was always, uh, 
that was always, always forgotten. So here in Ephesians 2, there's an implied division between Jew and Gentile, and we know that there was real hostility between them that resulted in division. But that division wasn't primarily a social problem or an ethnic problem. I would argue that it was a theological problem. They had forgotten that all of God's creation was made good, that all mankind is made in the image of God. Theologically, we call that the imago Dei, and it means that everyone, every single person has equal value, dignity, and worth before God and before one another. It doesn't matter if you're black or white. It doesn't matter if you're male or female. It doesn't matter if you're gay or straight. It doesn't matter if you're cisgender or gender non-conforming. It doesn't matter if you're rich or poor, good-looking or ugly. It doesn't matter if you have good hair, bad breath, stinky feet, or a hairy back. Everyone is made in the image of God, and everyone has value and worth and dignity equally. <clears throat> and our world today is saying that the problem is, is social, it's structural. And I agree to a point, but the root of the problem is sin. And that sin has far-reaching effects that do touch and impact systems. But we can't get the cart before the horse. Sin needs to be dealt with before there can, there can be any hope of genuine peace and reconciliation. So there's a problem. All of, the, all of the division that Paul is describing in this passage between Jew and Gentiles, um, and we can relate this to any of, uh, any of the social and ethnic divisions that we see today, arises out of a failure to understand the gospel rightly. Paul's therefore that he begins this passage with. It, uh, it points us back. Paul always does this when he writes, right? He, he's making these points that build on each other, and he usually has a therefore that builds on everything he said before, Right? So he says, therefore, and that reminds us of what he's addressed earlier, that we were all dead in trespasses and sins. Sin is the fundamental human problem. Our sin is both inherited and earned. Our Bible makes the case clear that we're born into it. You can read Romans 5 or 1 Corinthians 15, or you can take a look at your own children, or you can ask your wife. Sin is self-evident. Sin alienates us from God, and it alienates us from one another. In Genesis 3, after the fall, Adam and Eve, they, they hide from God out of shame and fear. These conditions didn't exist um, when they were in right relationship with God. The relational closeness that existed before had been broken, and Adam and Eve began, you know, they blamed each other. They blamed God. They blamed the serpent. Uh, their firstborn son ends up killing their secondborn son, and it's, it, it's chaos. It's a massacre, right? What we see is that the immediate consequences of sin is a broken relationship between God and but also broken relationships between humanity horizontally amongst one another. Uh, one way this alienation among uh, humanity is borne out through redemptive history is as divisions. Jew, Gentile, male, female, black, white, heteronormative, uh, LGBTQ, you know, the, the Montagues and the Capulets, right? Whatever. The list of divisions could go on forever. The point is that there's clearly something dividing us all. Critical theorists, uh, <clears throat> they would look at the division and they would ask, who has the power? Because the power holders have created the systems that benefit their group and oppresses subordinate groups. God looks at our divisions and blames it on sin, which is great news for us because we have a solution to the sin problem. So our passage says, but now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. 
So who's the you? It's everyone. <clears throat> We're all dead in trespasses and sin. Romans 3.23 says, All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. No one is righteous. No, not one. No one seeks for God. No one does good. The point is that outside of Christ, we only live for ourselves. Outside of Christ, it's me first. Outside of Christ, anything that looks like righteousness is just risk management and public relations. Outside of Christ, you know, you only stop to help the broken down car if the girl who's driving is cute, right? This was before I was married, by the way. Um, and I never stopped anyways. Outside of Christ, you only return the lost wallet if there's no cash in it, right? But now in Christ, because of the propitiatory, redemptive, reconciling power of his blood, we have been brought near to God, and he is our peace. <clears throat> this word peace, uh, a reine, I, I, I did a little word study on it. It means, it means almost, in a sense, freedom from worry. He himself is our, our freedom from worry. Why? Because he's made the two one. He's united us. Uh, when we were divided, separated by sin, desperately trying to self-justify, you know, we did that in, in one of really two ways, right? We do that either by trying to prove that we're pretty good, or we do that by trying to prove that others are worse than us. <clears throat> you know, we hope that God grades on a curve, that maybe it's not so important that I get an A. Um, maybe it's more important that everyone else gets an F. We convince ourselves that if God exists, he doesn't care about my grade so much as he cares that I'm at the top of the class. So the Jews, they stacked up their merits against the Gentiles and thought they were pretty well off. Uh, this is how... This is how we see Paul describing himself in Philippians, right? He says that he was a Hebrew of Hebrews of the tribe of Benjamin, circumcised on the eighth day, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness before the law, he calls himself blameless. Um, and, you know, in his mind, he's thinking, if God will accept them, he'll certainly accept me. Uh, rich old white men these days, they think very similarly, right? They assume that we live in a meritocracy, that everything they have, they've earned, that they are the result of their good choices and the more marginalized groups are the result of their poor choices. And it's, it's not entirely true. <clears throat> but none of that considers the inherent imago Dei, that image of God. Again, that kind of thinking is just, it's just a math we do to weigh our value against someone else and it's sinful, and it's twisted, and it needs to stop. Our God, he doesn't grade on a curve. Our God, he doesn't show partiality. But our world does, and this is where we live. So what do we do? Uh, we as Christians in the church, as ambassadors of our God who doesn't show partiality, we need to recover the attitude of Paul in Philippians who looks at his resume and calls it lost next to the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus. <clears throat> He has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. If you think you're under a covenant of works or, or under the law as a means of justification, which honestly um, you know, a lot of the church still does implicitly, uh, even if they don't say it explicitly, of course you're going to have rivalry. You're going to have envy. You're going to have suspicion. Uh, you're going to have that, you know, we're the in-group, they're the out-group kind of attitude. 
But if we're all condemned by the law and justified by Christ's law-keeping and by Christ's obedience and by his sacrifice and by his resurrection and all of his obedience and righteousness is imputed to us, then there's no longer any basis for boasting before God or each other. That's how he's made us one. He did that by coming in the flesh and doing for us all of the good work that we needed to do without any of the bad that we love to do. He paid the penalty for our bad, that our bad earned for us so that we could rest assured and experience that peace, that salvation is secured only and entirely on the basis of everything he did. So now I can stop trying to pull my brothers and sisters down beneath me in fear that I might get rejected. Rather, I can finally serve them without fear that I won't get anything in return. All right. So are you following me on this point? Because it is really important. The hostility that exists between me and everyone else, it goes away when we find out that we're not in competition anymore. If we're all lumped in a mass of condemned creation in Adam, then there's nothing we can do about it. Sin is a terminal illness, and the only hope of salvation is the better Adam. I've sung this song before at church. I think it's beautiful. One of the lines is, see the true and better Adam come to save the hell-bound man. Christ, the great and sure fulfillment of the law, in him we stand. That's what our passage this morning means when it says, for through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. In just judgment, our own merits, on our own merits, we all stand condemned. And in his gracious mercy, as benefactors of his substitutionary work, we all have been granted equal access in the same spirit to the Father. But there's a big problem with pretty much everything I've said since I've started. Um, and that's that uh, most of it is vertical. Most of it's dealing with man's relationship with God. Um, and don't get me wrong, I think that's really important. I mentioned before that part of the problem in the world and in the church is, uh, you know, as we often try to get the cart before the horse, right, we run straight to planning, to programs, to systems to get the results without first establishing the necessary biblical presuppositions and establishing the far-reaching, ever-present effects of sin in our world and the surety of the finished work of Christ on our behalf. Um, and if we do that, it, it, it primes people to remember that they're working in a broken world with broken people and that the basis of our work is gratitude, empathy, and love, and not merit. If you've ever been on the, on the subway system in Toronto, you've probably experienced this. Um, and if you're bad with directions like I am, you've probably gotten lost and ended up far away from where you wanted to go. Uh, the subway system, there's, there's probably more to it than I, than I really know, but I haven't gone that far in it. But there's, there's two separate lines. There's lines that run north and south, and there's lines that run east and west. Um, and I'm pretty sure it's around Brewer and Young, uh, there's there's what's called an interchange station, and one of the things uh, at the interstate at the in interchange station is when you can you can switch from going north and south and get on trains that run east and west or vice versa. And one of the things that I've thought over the last five months is that uh, prevalent in the church today and in culture today, there's two trains of thought. Um, one that I'll call you know the biblical rail, right, and it's running north and south, and the other one I'll call the critical theory express, and it's running east and west. And they have two very different starting points and two very different ending points. But there is an intersection somewhere in the middle around these justice, justice issues that we've been, we've been talking about in church and we've been seeing uh, 
we've been seeing in culture and we've been seeing in the news. Uh, the critical theory expressed, it's a worldview. It, it's been likened to a religion. Um, unlike Christianity, uh, with critical theory, the world's problems, uh, it, it's not sin, it's oppression. Uh, salvation is liberation from the oppressor, and sanctification is moral progress, however they define that. Uh, it's atheistic to the core because within its own view, power holders are necessarily oppressive. And that means that either God, um, either God's a moral monster or there is no God. Now the focus from, uh, from the proponents of critical theory on relationships between, between dominant and subordinate groups in society, it, it, it's shown a light on a lot of ways that social location and group affiliation can either harm or benefit people. So don't get me wrong, um, it has served our world, if not to at least point directly to the ways that power holders create systems that sustain their own dominance and simultaneously, systematically hold others down. Um, but the church, the church has opened its doors to these ideas by ignoring justice issues that have been right in front of its eyes. So people in the church that, that really care about justice, they've, they've, they've swallowed this worldview whole. And, uh, and I don't think they necessarily realize that they've hopped on a train that's heading in the wrong direction. Um, so back to my lifeboat analogy for a second. According to critical theory, um, and like I said, I think there's some truth to this. I'm not willing to accept the entire theory wholesale, but I can agree with parts. Uh, the power holders in society are the ones that tell us what's valuable. So if you're in the lifeboat and you've got money, that's a tick in the pro column for you. Right? I mean, if you've seen the movie Titanic, this happens, right? The rich people are on the boats and you know, they're not going to let the poor people on the boats because their lives are more valuable. Um, the power holders, they've created a system that we all live in uh, that implicitly tells people that, uh, that money makes you valuable. If you're in the lifeboat and you're a black man, the power holders have created a system, again, that we all live in that implicitly tells everyone within it that black skin makes you somehow less valuable. And being a man makes you more valuable. So you get a check in the pro column and you get a check in the con column. This is what people mean when they talk about systemic injustice. And if you don't believe that this exists, I urge you, like John and Jordan were talking about last week, to open your eyes and ears to hear the stories. Um, we need to be listening um, and talking to people and taking their experiences seriously and addressing the injustices as we see them. Doing justice looks like lament. It looks like solidarity. It looks like reconciliation and collaboration and action resulting in change. And church, we need to get better at these things because we have failed in the past. And in our failure, we've opened the door to a worldview that is counter to our biblical worldview. So my goal with what time I have left is to, is to help guard that transfer station and make sure that the Christians that care about justice, and rightly so, that they stay on the right train. And I hope to show that there is a biblical imperative for the church to do justice and that in view of the gospel and its benefits, the church are really the only people that truly can. So our passage says, so then you are no longer strangers and aliens 
to your fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. <clears throat> All right, so I've said we've been brought near to the Father by the blood. As a result, we've been granted citizenship into his kingdom and made members of his household as beloved children and heirs. And the household of God, it says here, is built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, which means the scriptures, the apostles who wrote, wrote our New Testament and, uh, and the prophets who wrote our Old Testament scriptures. This means that we're built on the Bible. So I took some time and I did, some, I did a word study. And so let's see, take a moment to, to see what the Bible has to say regarding justice. Uh, our Old Testament, <clears throat> the foundation of the prophets, uh, it tells us, not to pervert justice, not to deny justice, not to deprive justice or withhold it. We're told that our God, he loves justice, that justice is like the great, his justice is like the great deep. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of his throne. We're commanded to seek, uphold, maintain, love, and do justice. When Jesus began his ministry and he chose his disciples, I don't think it was a coincidence that he chose Simon, um, a zealot, part of a violent revolutionary Jewish sect set on liberating the Jewish people from the oppressive Roman rule, and Levi, a tax collector, and a Jewish one at that, right? One who collaborated with the Romans and used the threat of the sword and power of the occupying Roman regime to collect taxes from his own people above and beyond that which Rome levied uh, to get rich. These two people, um, you know, they, they would not be the kind of people, if you, if you were planning a wedding and you were friends with both of them, you couldn't invite them both, right? These aren't even the kind of people that, you know, you see one at the front and one at the back or one at the far left and one at the far right. They both can't be in the same room, right? Because it would be war. These are social and political enemies that have been reconciled by Jesus. And I think it would have been a shock to anybody who knew them to see them together, you know, sharing table and eating and communing as friends. In Acts, following Jesus' ascension, uh, there's an almost immediate push towards reconciliation. Peter is confronted with his own unwillingness to fellowship and share table with Gentiles and controversy surrounding uh, the Gentile inclusion, which is dealt with here in this passage and in many other of the epistles. Um, it's the main focus of the, the first church synod in history recorded in Acts 15, the Jerusalem Council. Reconciliation and justice is shown to be a fruit of Jesus' ministry uh, through stories of people like, like Zacchaeus in the Gospels, a tax collector who encounters, Jesus as, who encounters Jesus and is confronted with his sin and vows to repay his transgressions up to four times the amount. Uh, it's not a very popular word to some today, uh, but you know what it's called? It's called reparations, um, and there is a biblical precedent for it. Justice work and reconciliation work, it comes at a cost, usually a social or a financial cost, because when we acknowledge injustices, when we acknowledge wrong and consider making real change to, re to address real issues, uh, we know that there's going to be people who get upset because privilege is real. And the groups that have it have conscious and subconscious reasons to ignore or deny their privilege and argue that they live in a meritocracy, that they've earned everything they have. Uh, in cases like this, we need a little bit of introspection. You need to assume that sin has twisted you, that sin has twisted the systems that benefit you. And if you find that you have greater access and greater mobility 
and greater opportunities in this world than others, um, then part of our call is to leverage that privilege and use it to help other people rise and to use your voice to call out the explicit and implicit injustices that you, that you see as you see them. We need to shine light on the dark places. And as citizens of God's kingdom, beloved sons and daughters, heirs to God who made all things and holds all things together, fully secure in the sureness of our salvation and inheritance, we're able to lay it all down on the line like no one else for the benefit and help of those who need it. Because if everything we need in this life we have in Christ, then we're freely able to risk it all without fear of getting anything in return. Uh, something that we've inherited from, uh, from the Anabaptists and the Gnostics, um, it snuck in from people, 19th century revivalist preachers like Charles Finney, is, is the separation of, of God's will and work from means in the world. We're losing the fact, and we've missed the fact, that God works in this world through means. Um, and when I say that, what I mean is that typically he works through people and things rather than by miracle. What that means is that, uh, you know, in, talk, in talking over the last five months around, around George Floyd is that God probably isn't going to stop systemic racism in policing by zapping all the bad cops with a lightning bolt from the sky. It means that somewhere in that crowd of people that were watching um, as Derek Chauvin kneeled on George Floyd's neck, there was probably a professing Christian I don't know how many people were in that crowd. I've seen the footage, but there's a lot of voices calling out. Um, and if more than 50% of uh, people in the States consider, the, consider the, themselves Christians, I don't think it's unlikely that there would have been one in that crowd who I would argue could have been God's means of stopping an injustice in that moment. Because like I said, if everything we need has been secured in Christ, then a Christian can be so bold as to risk themselves and tackle a disgrace of a cop off of a dying man's neck in order to save his life. In reference to justification by grace alone, through faith alone, on account of Christ alone and man's work, uh, Luther used to say, God doesn't need your good works, but your neighbor does. Not because it saves you. That's already done. But because God works through means. He works through us, his church. The holy temple in the Lord with Jesus Christ as the cornerstone. I'd like to finish uh, by reading a part of Article 26 from the Belgic Confession on the Sanctification of Sinners. We believe that this true faith being wrought in man by the hearing of the word of God and the operation of the Holy Spirit sanctifies him and makes him a new man, causing him to live a new life and freeing him from the bondage of sin. Therefore, it is so far from being true that this justifying faith makes men remiss in a pious and holy life, that on the contrary, without it, they would never do anything out of love to God, but only out of self-love or fear of damnation. Therefore, it is impossible that this holy faith can be unfruitful in man, for we do not speak of a vain faith, but of such a faith which is called in Scripture a faith working through love, which excites man to the practice of those works which God has commanded in his word. And with Jesus first as Savior and secondly as an example of righteous works, let us reflect once more on what he said about himself. 
the spirit of the Lord is upon me, Jesus, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives, recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. With all the security and the assurance that the propitiating blood and righteous life of Jesus gives us, out of such gratitude, let us imitate our Jesus in liberating the oppressed. And may the good news of the gospel be the source of our love for justice and never an obstacle to it.